0: Amen and amen. That is Pastor Jerry Sweat. He is my pastor. We're going to talk about him in a little while and, and, and talk about how we got here as a church. I'm glad you're here at church today. Happy Father's Day. Can we give a hand to all the dads? All right, dads. Hey, if you're a dad, will you raise your hand? Man, look at all that. In church. Way to go. Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you, normally Father's Day at church is no good because you come. At, Mother's Day is awesome, right? Everybody loves mama to get a rose, a video of kids. It's great come to Father's Day. And they just tell you how crappy you are. But that's not how we're going to do today. Um, We're going verse by verse through Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 15. So if you'll grab your Bible and be in Acts chapter 15, we're in week three of a series called Restore. And uh, week one, week one, we talked about the first few verses in Acts 15, where the church gets together to talk about all these Gentiles that are coming to the Lord. And we want to be like the first church when they said, why would we make it difficult, those who are turning to the Lord? And so... um, one of the things we rolled out is the Restore Project, and one of the things that we're trying to do here is not make it difficult, those who are coming to the Lord, and sometimes it can be difficult to come to the Lord here because you can't find a seat or you can't get parking, or the biggest difficulty lately has been getting your kids checked in to our new gen. We have so many children that, that we're still turning some families away sometimes on the weekends, and so uh, if you'll reach out into the seat back in front of you, there's this piece of collateral called... Excuse me, the restore, <clears throat> excuse me, the Restore Project, and if you'll grab that and open it up on the right side, there's an opportunity for you to commit to that. If you would like to commit financially to the building out of the 25,000 square feet behind us as we rebuild that old dilapidated leftover Walmart as God continues to restore people unto himself. And so far, we've got about 150 families that have committed, which isn't too bad in two weeks, but over the next six months, we need that to go to about a thousand families. Okay, so we're going to get—we'd like for about a thousand of you to be committed to our restore project. Which, in, in regards to uh, how many people come to this church, that's not a whole lot. It's about a quarter of the people, and so uh, we'll talk about that more in a little while. But, but the reason we're doing that is because we want our church to be an on road to salvation, an on ramp to salvation, and not a roadblock. And so we're gonna, we to—we want to take out all the hindrances. Um, so the Lord will just continue to do what he has been doing and last week That's what we talked about church unity and that we as a church are just going to be a, a Church of honor and we're going to honor other churches and honor each other We're going to outdo one another with honor and you last week wrote Thousands and thousands and thousands of encouraging letters to about five or six pastors And so we're going to send those letters out this week to really to the ends of the earth to uh, St. John's County and Jacksonville, but also to New Jersey and uh, Brazil, and Uganda, and you have no idea um, how God will use your words to encourage a church and a pastor uh, that will go out all over the place this next week. And so, that leads us to today, in the last week of this series called Restore, and we're going to talk about unity, not uniformity, and I don't know who preaches three weeks in one chapter out of Acts, but I know a guy who does, so here we go, Acts chapter 15, pick it up in thirty-six. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So Paul and Barnabas, they had been out on the road and sharing the gospel and all these churches are getting planted all these people are getting saved. And so Paul says to Barney, get your horses and let's get your saddle, let's saddle up and we're on the road. We don't want to just... Uh, Get all these people that attend an event once a week, but we want to encourage the body of Christ. You see, they wanted, to, they wanted to build churches that made disciples, not just showed up. So they're going to go back around that loop, and they're going to encourage the believers at the church. And so, by the way, if you've been attending here at 1122 for a while, and you haven't really jumped all the way in, all you have to do at the end of any service is go back here to the Connect Center, because we want to make disciples not just have you attend an event. So if you've been attending for a while, that's kind of the first step to show up and sit in rows. And the next step for you is to go to the Connect Center, and you can either serve on one of our serve staff teams or get involved in a disciple group. And so Paul says, all right, Barney, let's go. We're going to saddle up. We're going to go out on another mission trip, verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Now I don't know if you remember Mark. Um, Back in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, Paul and Barnabas and Mark were out in Pamphylia, and John Mark said, man, this is a lot harder than I thought. You know, he thought it was all cupcakes and rainbows doing ministry, and it can be a little tough. In fact, they can kind of try to kill you back in the day in Pamphylia, and so he's like, hey, I appreciate your ministry, but somebody's throwing rocks at me, so I'm going to go home. And so he goes home plays Xbox or something at his mom's house, and Paul continues on the journey, and so this is Mark, and Barnabas says, okay, Paul, as we go out on our second missionary journey... I would like for us to take John called Mark. Now, here's the thing about Barnabas. Barnabas's name means the son of encouragement. So that's just kind of the guy that Barnabas is, right? He probably knits and bakes bread, and he's really encouraging, and he cheers people on. He's the kind of guy that you want to coach your kids in t-ball because he never fusses at them, or they don't keep score. Why would you keep score? So silly. You know, he's he's just nice and kind. I mean, he's so kind. If you feel bad about yourself, you know, you shoot, you shoot Barnabas a, a text or an email, and he'll email you back about what a great guy you are, and we need some Barnabases in this world, all right? He's the son of encouragement. He's going to give Mark multiple chances, multiple chances. How many of you are kind of like Barnabas in this room? Any of you kind of Barnabas type people? All right, you see how you raise your hand even? Pass it around on the front. He's an encourager, and he's like, I am. All right, he's looking at me. Don't look at me. No, go ahead. If you're a Barnabas, raise your hand. Come on, be proud of you. We love Barnabas. All right, good. Look at all that. So if you see somebody with their hand raised and feel bad about yourself, go sit next to that guy. He'll tell you you're awesome. <laughs> so that is Barnabas. There's not much of a Barnabas in me at all. I'm sorry. Here's my guy, verse 38. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so Paul says, we ain't taking that little wimpy kid, all right? He had his chance. I took him, and on the way to Pamphylia, and I remember when he came in and said, look, I stomach hurts. I got to go home. Go home? What is wrong with you, boy? Get in the game. We're doing ministry. We're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Go home. Well, go on then, all right? That's fine, but you ain't going anywhere with me ever again. Go on. And Barnabas is like, I think we should take him. Paul's like, you can take him. I ain't taking him anywhere, all right? We might sing songs in heaven together forever, but we ain't doing ministry on earth, all right? Because I can't cat on that dude. He had his chance. He tapped out early, so he is out. Man, I like Paul. All right, so (laughs) verse 39. Don't miss this. And there arose a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement. And you can imagine how that thing went. Paul's like, look here, Barnabas, you son of encouragement. I ain't taking Mark. That guy's nothing but a, he's a drag on our mission in our ministry. We don't hire ministries, all right? We do ministry. And so I got enough to work on. Remember when I was in Leicester and they threw rocks at me till I was dead? What did I do? I got raised up, went back in the city. Where was John Mark then? All right, he was working on a new high score on on Medal of Honor or something, all right? He's going to, I ain't got time for that cat, right? We've got stuff to do. And then Barnabas is like, come on, Paul, really? Don't you know what the the gospel, Jesus gave you a second chance, why don't you give him another chance? You know, and they had this sharp, sharp disagreement. It's part of the reason that I believe that the Bible is true. Because if you're right, if you're just going to make this thing up, you're going to leave this part out of the text. Two of the primary leaders in the first century church have a sharp disagreement I mean, there was probably screaming and yelling and fussing. I know on Paul's end, maybe not on Barnabas, but on Paul's end at least, I mean, this is a former terrorist and a Pharisee. He knows how to bring it. And so what does Luke do? Luke includes this in the text. There is a sharp, sharp disagreement. And how bad was it? And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. I mean, this thing is so bad that these guys look at one another and say, well, we, we can't do this mission trip together. In fact... My ministry is going this way, and your ministry is going that way. And Paul was probably like, fine, go on, you and, you know, wimpy little Mark, and y'all go do whatever you want to do. Start your kumbaya ministry. I don't care. I'm going to go save the world. And so they, they sharp disagreement, and they part ways. You see, here's the thing about being a Christian, folks, that you will be in conflict. I don't know if you know this, but everybody in the room is either coming out of a conflict, heading into a conflict, or you're in the middle of a conflict. And if you go, not me, well, then you're just too dumb to talk to, all right? That's just where you are. But hang in there. We'll be singing again in 45 minutes. We'll be back to you, okay? But it's just true. Conflict is just a part of us. And I wish I had time to just really roll this out, but I've, I've covered it before. Um, <clears throat> a couple years ago, we did the book of Galatians. If you go to church, uh, coe22.com over on the archive sermons and go to the Galatians series, I think it's the second one called How to Win a Fight. And we're gonna we just walk through biblically how Christians should be in conflict one another with one another, because we will be in conflict. I need to roll through them real, real quick, just in case you weren't around a couple years ago for that. The first thing when you're in conflict, whether a brother or sister in Christ is you better be in fellowship with one another. Okay, you better be in fellowship with one another. That means that Paul and Barnabas, they had some history together, they had enough relational bank that they could have this kind of conflict in brotherly love, but that, they, that their relationship could endure this conflict because they were in fellowship with one another. It's why I despise, I absolutely despise the blog or the Twitter or the Facebook post that takes a shot at some other guy in ministry. We will not put up with that in this church. If Do I not think that there are some people in our community and churches around that, that, that need some sharpening doctrinally and theologically? Knowing that we do too. But I'm not going to take a shot at another guy. If, if God blesses me with a friendship with another pastor, and I think there's a blind spot in his ministry, then I'd say, hey brother, have you ever thought about this? Can we study this text together? But that will be done in relationship, not on a blog post. Secondly, you better speak up. You've got to speak up. You've got to engage in conflict in the areas that need to be engaged. Thank God that Barnabas had the guts to say, even though it probably wasn't even in his nature, that he had the guts to speak up and say, hey, Paul, I really think we need to take Mark on this trip with us. And then when Paul pushed back and said, not on my watch, then Barnabas had the guts to speak up and say, no, I really think this is what we're supposed to do. How many of you are conflict-averse? You just don't like conflict at all? Okay, again, you, could, you can't even raise your hand all the way, can you? You're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, that's fine. That's good. If everybody's like me, we just fight all the time. It wouldn't be awesome. So, <laughs> But there are times where you've got to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have the courage to speak up because it's worth fighting for, fighting for your family, fighting for that relationship, fighting for the gospel, whatever it is. Sometimes the conflict is worth it. You've got to speak up. The third thing <laughs> that we learn is that you better do it face-to-face, that when you're in conflict with your brother or sister in Christ, you talk to them and not about them. All right? You, you do this face-to-face. Face. And and I would just say, I don't have a Bible verse on this. I just think it's this important. If you're going to have any conversation with somebody that is sensitive or serious, it needs to be done face to face. Not text, not Facebook, not Twitter, none of those things. It needs to be face to face. How many conflicts have have gone worse because you can't read tone in a text? And then you're going, well, that's not what I didn't mean it that way. Well, then you need to have the maturity to go face to face. Fourthly, um, if you're going to get in a fight, if you're going to enter into a conflict, you better be right. And what I mean by that is you better know the gospel. That's why we teach the Bible here. We teach the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. You better know the difference between God's precepts and your preferences. And if you want to have a little uh, a little opinion sparring match with one another over your opinion, that's fine. But when you know that going in, when you know going in, "Hey, this is just my preference, this isn't necessarily God's precept," then that's a totally different discussion than, well, the way I do it has to be the way. God must like it this way because that's the way I like it. You better know the difference between. God's precepts and your own preferences. It's why here we teach the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Part of the reason why is because I want you to know the gospel and see your world through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you and I are wretched, black-hearted sinners and God loved us so much that Christ paid the price for that sinfulness, and he adopted or drew us into his own family, not based on us, but because of him and his love. And now we stand righteous before an almighty and sovereign God. And when you can see your world through the lens of the gospel, it changes everything. I've got a friend at Beach who is a retired Secret Service agent. And I didn't, I didn't know this until I met him. I knew they protected the president. But one of the things Secret Service do is, um, is that they... They investigate and pursue uh, counterfeit folks, you know, people that make counterfeit money. And one, one of the ways they do that to identify counterfeit money, he would tell me, is that you can't, you don't have enough time in your life to study all the different variations of counterfeit money. And it gets better and better and better every year. And so what they do to get ready to identify that is they become so familiar with the real thing. They study a real dollar bill so well, they know it so well, that they can tell when something's not real, as opposed to trying to point out the defects and the fake ones. And you see, we want to be so immersed in the gospel of Jesus Christ that when somebody comes at you with something that's not the gospel, you can say, no, 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 that's not the gospel. I I don't even know that I can pick apart everything that you're saying, but I know that's not the truth of the gospel. So you better be right. You better be right. Fifthly, is that you need to be a firsthand witness. If you're going to be in conflict with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you better be talking about what you have experienced and not just what you've heard. And I don't care if just because you say amen at the end of it in your disciple group does not make it any less gossip. All right? This is not I was trolling on Facebook and I saw and therefore we need to talk about it. We need to pray for Ted. Guess what I heard he was doing? That is not... That that, that just escalates a conflict that doesn't need to happen as opposed to going face-to-face and one-on-one. You'd be a first-hand witness. The sixth one is this. You better check your motives. This is the one that I always have to come back to. You better check your motives. Is this about me being right or is this about his righteousness? Because I just got to tell you, I like to fight and I like to be right. I mean, I really like to be right. And I'm right so often that I just assume... (laughs) I'm probably right again. And one time, Gretchen said to me, you always think you're right. I said, of course I always think I'm right. Who would think they're wrong and still argue on the wrong side? If I thought I was wrong, then I would convert to the right side, and then I'd still be right, right? Right. So you better got to check your motives in this conflict. Is this about me being right? Because the Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So is this conflict for the glory of God and about his righteousness, or is this about me and my own little territory? And then and then, lastly, this is, this is what, this makes everything different. We always seek reconciliation. Um, one of the things I do almost every week is I run my sermon by Pastor Ryan. You know, he's another theologian on staff, and I just go, all right, here's what I'm talking about, I run it through, run it by him, and then... And then he'll just reflect some stuff back to me. And he said, one, one of the major differences, differences between Christian conflict and non-Christian conflict is not that Christians won't ever be in conflict, but the difference is that our goal is reconciliation, not winning. And so my relationship with you is supposed to be a reflection of my relationship with the Lord. And I have been reconciled unto an almighty God by what Christ did on the cross not because of my rightness, but because of his righteousness. I am reconciled to an almighty God, and I was his enemy before Christ died on the cross for me. And so there is nothing that you could do against me that would make our relationship irreconcilable. That our relationship, our goal is reconciliation. And so even though, even though Barnabas and Paul have a sharp disagreement And they're separated from each other. You've got to let the Bible be commentary unto itself. And so if you go to uh, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, and Colossians, all three books that Paul wrote, there are verses in each of those books that happened after this conflict where Paul calls Barnabas things like uh, brother and co-laborer. That Though they had a a different vision on how they were going to do missions and ministry, they really had a staffing issue is what they had. And so, uh, though they, they differed on that, they could rally around one thing, which was the gospel. And that they were still reconciled as brothers in Christ. And so, they have a sharp disagreement to the point where they separated from one another. And so, we'll pick it up. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away and saying kumbaya the whole way, probably. Verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Here's the point. Unfiltered debate and unswerving support of the gospel are essential to the unstoppable movement of the church. Unfiltered debate. In other words, there are times where Christians need to get in the room and be able to have unfiltered debate to talk about, I think we should do it this way, and I think we should do it that way, and I want this guy on staff, and I don't want that guy on staff. Those kinds of things. Unfiltered debate and unswerving commitment to the gospel that every church's mission essentially should be the same, and that is to make disciples. And the reason I say that is because Jesus made it up, not me. It's called the great co-mission. He says, therefore, go into all nations doing what? Make disciples. But every vision of of individual churches, they can be all over the place on how they do that and with whom they do that and what kind of music style they had and their staffing strategy and discipleship strategy and mission strategy. Those are all kind of different visions and strategies, but the but the gospel, the, the mission is the same. And so it's very, very important. And we see it right here in Acts 15, that they have unfiltered debate and unswerving commitment to the gospel. And those are ingredients to the unstoppable movement called the church. You see, we know the church can't be stopped because Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That the church will prevail. And so there's, there's at least three. There's probably a hundred, but I can think of three. Here are three things that result from Paul and Barnabas separating. First of all, sharp disagreement led to a clarity of vision for each of their ministries. So this sharp, this sharp disagreement that they have, and then they decide to separate out of it, essentially what it did is it clarified each of the visions that God had for their lives. And if they, if they didn't have the guts to enter into that sharp disagreement, then both of them could have been disobedient to what God had called them to do. If Paul says, all right, Mark, come on, just join the trip, all right? I really don't think you should, but come on. You know, the entire time he's on the second leg of his missionary journey, he's waiting for Mark to fail again. Every time the heat gets turned up, you know he's going to be looking going, I don't know if this cat's got it. There'd be distrust in the team. It, it wouldn't be what God had called Paul to do. And if Barnabas hadn't had the guts to bring this up, then, then Mark doesn't get to be developed into the leader that, that God had called Mark to do. And so uh, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody sharpen iron, but it looks painful. There's heat and friction. I mean, you heat that thing up till it's glowing red, and you're hitting it with a hammer, and sparks are flying, and it does not look fun. But the end product is a sharper sword. And so I bet if you were sitting in the meeting with Paul and Barnabas, you probably would have been incredibly uncomfortable. Have you ever been in one of those sharp disagreements with people? Like you're not in it, you're just near it, like a husband and wife, and you're out back, and you're like, I really don't think we should be doing this here, folks. And they're just sharply disagreeing in front of you. Well, sometimes God uses that heat and that friction to sharpen one another. And so as a result of this, there's a clarity of vision for each of their ministries. The second thing that happens out of this is that new leadership rose up due to the vacuum created. See, if it was Paul's plan, it would have been Paul and Barnabas again. But since they decided to separate, then Paul's got to get some, he's got to fill a spot. His number two slot's wide open. So what does he do? He goes and raises up this guy named Silas. Guess who they pick up in chapter 16? They pick up this young pastor named Timothy. Timothy. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Bible study or not, but Timothy in the Bible is a big deal. Here's the rule. If you get books of the Bible named after you, then you are a big deal. I mean, when you're going to bump into Timothy in heaven and be like, hey, I'm Joby. Who are you? And he'll, I never heard of you. And and I go, who are you? Timothy. You're like, the Timothy? He's like, yep. First and second Timothy. Right here. You're back. That's Timothy. Like, he's a big deal. And the only reason this was possible is because of the vacuum that the separation created, God raises up brand new leaders. The third thing that happened in this is that both ministries are blessed. Both ministries are blessed. If you were to just go on with the original plan, then they're only going to one place. They're only going to Syria. But because of this, now, now Barnabas, he's gonna go to Cyprus also. The ministry efforts are doubled. And you want to talk about a blessing in ministry. You know this guy Mark that that, that Paul wasn't a big fan of? Maybe you've read some of his material. Guess what he wrote? The Gospel of Mark. It's kind of a big deal. Not very creative on the title, but it is a big deal. That God uses this guy to write one of the gospels. So their visions are sharpened, new leadership rises up, and both ministries are blessed. And as I read through... Acts 15, especially based on the experiences of the last couple of years of my life, I began to see just some some unbelievable similarities in what was happening here and just some of the experiences of, of my last couple of years. And so f- until we're done for the next few minutes, I want to share with you basically how we as a church got here and the reason we showed that Pastor Jerry blessing video early is because he is the pastor that that really played one of the most pivotal roles in us being a church, and I think it's appropriate, being Father's Day, that that we talk about Pastor Jerry and his role in our lives as a church. Because, I'm, I, I'm having the opportunity to get to know a lot of African American pastors. It's you know on purpose. We're trying to reach out and do some things together um, here in the city, and so. I've gotten to know uh, Bishop George Davis and Bishop Vaughn McLaughlin and, and some of these guys. And it's cool when they introduce themselves as bishop, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm the cardinal of 1122. Hey, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> oh, no. Why not, right? Who can tell me I'm not? So, <laughs> so one of the things I've learned from the African-American church culture is that those pastors will introduce me to these men in their lives and say, hey, this is my father. And they don't mean biological father. They mean like their spiritual father. It's either the man that led them to Christ or was influential in growing them up in ministry. And so as I began to think about that, my spiritual father would be Coach Bull Lee, the guy that led me to Christ. But, my, but I've got another spiritual father. One of the most influential people in my life in regards to ministry is Pastor Jerry Sweat. He's like my spiritual father. And so about 10 years ago... Um, I, I think I told you last week that I was about to tap out of ministry. I thought maybe maybe I don't have what it takes and we decided we'll give it one more chance and so we put out a resume. I'd been a youth pastor for about ten years at that point. And so Gretchen and I started interviewing all over the place and quite honestly she Gretchen tells me one day, Hey, we got a call from a Beach United Methodist Church. Do you wanna do you wanna go interview there? And and y'all I wasn't Methodist, I was ordained Southern Baptist, all right. And so I I don't even think I'd ever been to a Methodist church. I I mean, no, it was a good church, but I didn't know anything about it. And the only reason we came is because it was beach. And I said, hey, baby, it'll be like one of those timeshare things. If we give them a couple of hours of an interview, I bet they'll put us at a hotel and pay our dinners and it's like a free vacation. I was on a youth pastor budget and, you know, it's the closest vacation I could get. So that's, that was, we didn't even think we'd like it. That's what we were going to do. So we showed up and we go to an interview at Beach UMC and I sit uh, with these folks just amazing group of people that ended up being some of my, my closest friends in the next few years. And, and at, sort of at the end of the interview, after they asked me a bunch of questions, I just said, i got one question for you. Why do you go to this church? I mean, I bet you passed eight churches to get here today. So why, Beach? Why do you come to this church? And person by person just went around the circle, and they shared their testimony about how they had experienced the grace of Jesus Christ at Beach United Methodist Church. And they were crying, and it was just, it was rich. And we walked out of that interview, we hadn't talked anything about salary or any of that kind of thing, responsibility, job description, none of that stuff. We walked out of that room and Gretchen, who has the spiritual gift of discernment, just leans over and says, I think we're coming into this church, aren't we? I said, I think so. And so sure enough, uh, in 2003, we came on staff at Beach, or I came on staff at Beach UMC as the youth pastor. And things started out great. I mean, They were great the whole time I was there, but the youth ministry took off almost immediately. And uh the you know lots of students started showing up. We had to divide high school, and middle school because so many people were there. And then Beach was going to tear down this old fellowship hall and cost a bunch of money just to tear it down. I thought, and I said, can you just give the youth department the money? And then and then we'll we'll just kind of reinvigorate the place. And we had our own youth building, and I mean things were just going awesome. Pastor Ryan came on staff with us to to run our middle school ministries, and it was just as good as it get in youth ministry world. It couldn't get any better. And then. A group of leaders in the church. We all got together and said, "You know what, Beach? We need something. We need something else. We need to do some other things." So, um, so we we started eleven twenty two. We had a lot of teenagers and we had a lot of their parents, but there was kind of a gap in between. And so we got together and we stacked hands and we started eleven twenty two. And in the meantime, I was still doing student ministry, and and God was just knitting together the Martins and the Sweats in just a way that's hard to describe. I mean. Pastor Jerry, he would come to almost every youth event. He would show up and sit in the back with his notebook, and, and I remember the first few weeks, I, I was like, hey, is everything okay? I mean, why? imagine your boss showing up to your desk every week in your biggest presentation with a notebook going, all right, Scooter, go, <laughs> right? <clears throat> and he was just so encouraging, and I don't know if you know Pastor Jerry, he's the most encouraging person alive. If you want to feel awesome, just stand around him for a little bit. He laughs at every joke. Like, it's the funniest thing he's ever heard in his life, right? And so I'd say something. He'd be in the back of the youth meeting going, ha, 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 And so I'd just preach to him, and he'd laugh at me, and it'd be awesome, all right? But he just said, I'd just like to hear you teach, and, and I just want to go to church. And so um, his son ended up being one of my interns one year, and, and uh, his daughter, Ashley, led worship for us, and his, his daughter, Lindsay, led worship for us. And so I hired his wife, Denise, to run all of the production and worship part of what we did, and, and things were, I mean, it was just great. And then... Then we get together as a team and decide to start 1122. We're going to start a new service. And I was, and and actually we were just all going to take turns preaching and teaching it. But I was, I think I was going to teach it the most. And the reason it's called 1122, I wish I had a spiritual reason for you, but we had a 930 service and we were trying to start it as soon after the 930 service as we could. And we thought most of the crowd that we'll reach won't get up before 11 anyway. And we thought 1122 would be memorable. And that's what time we could start. And then, so we started calling it 1122. And then when other preachers would ask us about it, we felt like we needed a more spiritual answer. So in Brian Stone's car, we looked through every chapter and verse of 1122s in the Bible. And thank God for Mark, the guy we're talking about now. because like Leviticus 1122, stuff like that gets weird, you know, sacrificing goats and stuff. So it's a horrible name for something, especially a big movement. And so... So we called it 1122 and proof texted Mark 1122 and Jesus answered that faith in God. We went with it. And then, and then, um, and then really from, from September through that first semester, um, we didn't know if it was going to work. And really, honestly, we didn't even really care. Our student ministry, really, we saw 1122 was kind of a drain on what Pastor Ryan and I were doing in students. And so that's when we started. I started saying all kind of crazy stuff, like if you don't go on a mission trip, Now, we only had 200 people at that time, and I'd say, if you don't go on a mission trip in the next three years, this is not your service. You cannot attend here anymore, and everybody's like, that's crazy. I don't know. He can't tell me where to go, and then they'd bring two friends the next week. Y'all got to come here. That's crazy, people. All right, and they would show up, and then our first Compassion Sunday, uh, we lined the back of the church with trash cans put a compassion packet in every person's hand that came through the door. And I said, we're all sponsoring a kid. And if you can't come up with $38 a month, all right, because I know that's so much, you know, it's like a Chili's lunch. But if you can't come up with $38 a month, that's fine. Take your compassion packet and throw him in the trash can on the way out because that's where he'll eat tonight. All right, see y'all next week. And everybody's just crying and mad. You'd hear a punk in the trash can. People, all the Barnabas's in the room would run over there and get that poor kid out. And, about three, I, when we first started, um, the offering wasn't enough to cover the service, all right? So this was a drain on, on Beach's budget, and so, uh, and I said, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We passed the plate the first month or so of the service, and then I decided we're not passing the plate anymore. We're going to do boxes. Brad Bowen, build me some boxes, all right? We're going to make it hard to give. The Bible says in, in Corinthians, do not give under compulsion, and so I don't want to I don't want you to give under compulsion, so we're not going to put a plate under your nose. We'll make it hard to give. We're going to hide them around the edge of the room. You've got to fight your way out the rows to give, build some boxes. And Pastor Ben came to me and said, "Are you? what are you doing, man? Are you trying to kill this thing? I said, I'm trying to with everything I'm made of. I'm trying to kill it. And he was like, what? And I go, well... Here's the thing. All I could think about was Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel is talking to the Pharisees that are trying to kill this movement of Christianity. And Gamaliel says, if this movement is of these men, then it will fail on its own. But if it's of God, then you can't stop it. And so I thought, if this thing is going to rise and fall on how good I can preach and how good Ben can sing, then let's kill it as quick as we can so we can get on to whatever it is that God has for us. But if this is a movement of God, then we can't stop it if we try And so I tried to kill it and tried to kill it and tried to kill it. And it just grew, 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 grew. So then in January, we decided to make some organizational leadership changes. Um, I handed over student ministry to Pastor Ryan. And, and basically I said, because I'm a very different leader than Pastor Jerry. And I said, all right, I've either got to take the whole 1122 and run it the way I run it with my team and my folks. And I've got to, you know, do it that way. Or either I'm out. I'm back to block 84 with our students and I'm, I'm fine there. I kind of prefer that. And so we made those changes in January and got our team together, and we started just doing 1122, and then things just started happening in January and February. And then when we hit our first Easter, again, we were a service of about two or 300 people, and then our first Easter, 1,500 people showed up. And I don't know if you were there, but it was crazy. There were people sitting all over the place. It was just crazy. Remember, we the air conditioner would only work on, apparently, Thursday, Wednesdays or something. It never worked on Sunday, and so... Everybody's sweating to death, and it was great, right? you like, you think this is hot? Wait do you get to hell? That's kind of how I preach it. <clears throat> something just happened. And so, so one service turned into two services, turned into three services, and God was just doing something through 1122 that none of us foresaw. And so the leadership team of Beach gets together, and we have, we have these meetings about our future. What are we going to do? Where's this thing going? And so um, uh, we, we had to make a fundamental decision early. And the choices were this, were we going to be the best version of a United Methodist church that we could be? United Methodist denomination was founded by the Wesley brothers several hundred years ago, and it's a committee-driven style of ecclesiology. Um, It's really based on traveling pastors. Like in the 1800s, one pastor on a horse would cover about six or seven churches, so all the decisions were made in committees, and it was really reflective of the United States government and how it's set up with checks and balances and kind of a, a... representative vote. That's kind of the way it went. And so as we studied through the scriptures, I said, well, you know what? I see things like pastors and elders and deacons and local elders in the local church, and and I think we should move strong in that direction. And so we decided as a 2 B2MC leadership team years and years ago that we were going to go in that direction. We were going to not ask for permission from the denomination, but we were going to go in this direction of changing things, really, because that's what God had been blessing, and we were just trying to be obedient to what we thought he was telling us to do. But, with that in mind, we did not want to snub our nose at the United Methodists. Pastor Jerry had something very dear on his heart. He, his dream was, what if we could be an upward influence in a dying and declining denomination? The United Methodist denomination, just like almost every mainline denomination, has been in decline over the last 40 years. And a lot of it has to do with just kind of organizational leadership, et cetera. And so that's what we set out to do. And so for years, we were working on that, working on that. Every, I mean, titles were changing. The way we made decisions were changing. We were, we were putting an elder board together for, for Beach United Methodist Church. And so then Pastor Jerry goes on sabbatical, goes to rest and renew and study and be filled up. And he comes back. And when he comes back from sabbatical, we were going to pull the trigger on what we've been working on for a couple of years. And so... Um, he gets a small group of us, staff together, and sits us down and says, I'm not sure if we can do this or not. So like, excuse me? He goes, yeah, I I need to get permission. I need to ask the district superintendent if all these changes that we've been working on for two years, if if, if we have permission to do that. And so let me just tell you, uh, in that moment, there was a, we'll call it a sharp disagreement, right? Um, Unfiltered dialogue, mostly from me. Now again, I'm sort of like Paul, and Pastor Jerry is a lot like Barnabas, and so I mean, I'm kind of going crazy, right? And and what? And well, I thought you said, and we are going going crazy, and and but I need you to think about it from his point of view for a, for a second. Um, he, here's a guy that that hires in this youth pastor that we're really really close. I mean, I was his kid's youth pastor, worked with him very very close, and then and then. He's at a, a great church, two thousand people at his church, and then what does he do? Because he recognizes whatever he recognizes, and, and he says, "I tell you what, I'll give you the pulpit. Go ahead." And that that um, that the service that the youth pastor is preaching is the one that most of the people are attending. And you know what most senior pastors would do at that point? They go, "All right, thanks. I'll take over now." All right, but what does he do? He just no, no, he just kind of stays out of the way, just cheerly. He's just the biggest fan that we have. And then, um, and again, I, I'm, I'm a pretty aggressive leader and, and trying to push the ball down the field as fast and as far as we can go. And then on the eve of, the, of making these decisions and going public with them, he goes, all right, time out. I think I gotta go talk to the United Methodist. The, the organization that I have been a part of, he's, he's been a pastor of United Methodist Churches for like 30 years. And he, I mean, that's just, that's just the, the family that he grew up in. And so we thought, well, what are we gonna do? And so sure enough, when he went to get permission, they said, yeah, you're right, you can't do that. You can't have local elders in your church, and Joby's not a Methodist pastor, so he can't be a pastor at your church, and those kinds of things. And we, ah, what are we going to do? So that same leadership team gets back together in St. Augustine. And we go around, we worked on it for three days, and everybody in the room sort of pitched, here's the future, here's a potential option of what direction we could go. And everybody in the room is talking about, all right, um, Hey, let's just step back, reassess, and let's stick to the plan. It's just going to take us a little longer than we thought. And so we all make our presentations to Pastor Jerry about, about how we should all stay together, me included. I thought maybe that's what we could do. And then I said, but Pastor Jerry, here's the thing. You're the senior pastor of this church. God has appointed you as the leader of this church. This is your flock, not mine, your flock. So you have to make that decision. You've got all the wise counsel that we have. Now you have to make the decision. And so, in typical Pastor Jerry fashion, he said, I've got to go pray about it. And so, he went off to a sleepless night of prayer. I went and drank a beer and went to sleep. That's what I did. <laughs> Woke we'll up the next morning, and we showed up in this meeting with my future, my family's future, a lot of our staff people's future hanging in the balance. And we sat at a table and looked at him. And he talked about that night a little bit in prayer. And then he looked at us and he said, Well, Joby. I think it's time that you become a lead pastor of your own church. I just really have a peace about that. And I thought, well, that's funny because I kind of haven't feel nauseated about it. So <laughs> it's kind of weird how the Holy Spirit works in you and me differently, but that's cool. <laughs> but when he said it, as soon as he said it, I knew. I knew, I knew, I knew. I knew that God was calling me to do this. I didn't know it would be all this. We didn't know Walmart. We didn't know anything. I thought I'd be delivering pizzas or something like that to try to, most, most church planners are bivocational for the first few years, so I was, and I don't really have any skills, so I thought I'd, I'd have to do something like that. I looked down in my Bible, my Bible just happened to be open to uh, Acts 18, and I looked down and just saw red letters, and I know it's out of context, but here's the first thing that I read after he told me I was going to be the lead pastor of my own church. It says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. That's the first thing I read. And so I said, okay, let's do this. And then, here's what you've got to know. And from that moment, from that moment, Pastor Jerry leveraged everything he had to launch the Church of 1122. Because let me tell you what he could have done. He could have sitting at that table, he could have looked across at me and said, all right, I think it's time you, you're the senior pastor of your own church. And he could have gotten up from the table and said, now good luck with that. All right, all the beach staff, let's go get on the beach bus and go back to the beach church. All right, pastor, good luck with you and your ministry. And he could have just walked out of the room then. But that's how I felt, all right? So, (laughs) but instead, you know what he did? From that very moment, he leveraged everything he had for the launch of the Church of Eleven Twenty Two, was there sharp disagreement sharper than you would have been comfortable sitting in the room being a part of? But you know what happened? Clarity of vision. Not only did, did God's vision for my life become clear to be the lead pastor of our church, but but there was also a renewed clarity of vision for Pastor Jerry to lead Beach Church. And you know what else happened? Is that new? Uh, there there were new leadership that was that was raised up around us there's new leadership at beach and then new opportunities for leadership not just for me because i couldn't be the lead pastor at a methodist church but i'm able to be a lead pastor there was new leadership opportunities for me and for people around me pastor ryan who again i hired five or six years ago to come in and run middle school he he now runs all the ministries of, of the whole church and, folks, when we hired him, he was so young. All right, we hired him to, to run middle school. His first mission trip, he took middle schoolers on mission trip, but he wasn't old enough to drive the rental van, all right? <laughs> so we had, uh, we had, hey, can we get some adults? Hertz won't let pastor drive the kids on the mission trip. And so that, that leadership vacuum, God's beginning to raise up more and more leaders, and God has blessed both ministries. God has blessed both ministries, and you have no idea what Pastor Jerry had to go through so that we could be the church of 1122. I mean, he put everything on the line, his pension, his retirement, his status in the United Methodist denomination, him, his, his security as the senior pastor of Beach UMC, and not only did he just, he, and he didn't just, he wasn't just a martyr but he 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 led in such a way and the way that pastor Jerry leads he led in such a way that the district superintendent and the bishop of the United Methodist Conference in this area got on board and gave its full blessing for a United Methodist church to launch a non-denominational church for the first time in denominational history amen so <clears throat> there's a, a church magazine that did an article about about the launch it it came out about it came out last summer a guy named uh, uh tim stevens wrote this a friend of mine i won't there's a i won't read you the first part i'll just kind of pick it up uh, mid go here it says last month mark Beeston and i had the opportunity to go to jacksonville and to spend the day with pastor Joby and several of the leaders from beach umc the story that is unfolding there is unlike any i've ever heard let me give you a few highlights and then it just goes to bullet points And it says, Beach UMC is a church of around 2,000 people attending. Approximately 1,500 of them attend what is called 1122. This service started less than three years ago and has exploded in growth. The other 500 people attend Beach either in the original contemporary or traditional service. 1122, led by Joby Martin, has quickly outgrown the church that gave it a place to birth and experiment. Most senior pastors would be intimidated by this. Not true of Jerry Sweat. He is embracing the growth. In fact, he initiated the decision to expand the reach of Beach UMC. And rather than split, launch into two brand new churches. Beach UMC will will cease to exist as it has been known. One of the churches, the new Beach, will be United Methodist and continue to be led by Pastor Jerry Sweat. The other church, called 1122, will be led by Joby Martin and will be non-denominational. I want to make sure you read that last bullet. A United Methodist Church is birthing a brand new church, which will not be United Methodist. And it is with the full blessing of the district superintendent and bishop. If you aren't United Methodist, you have to trust me when I say, this is miraculous. And then he goes a little sarcastic, which is why I love it. It's almost as if the leaders in North Florida have decided that it is more important to further the kingdom of God and grow his church than it is to grow the denomination. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and so, oh, and then what I love is there's two pictures in here. I don't know if you can see it or not. You probably can't. You just got to trust me. There's a picture of me just talking to people, looking all mean and mad, and then there's Pastor Jerry <laughs> serving in Uganda, right? Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> it's usually how it goes. <clears throat> and so, I, I can't help but think of, look at what what's happened here in the last 18 months and see that yeah, there was a sharp disagreement, but it was in love. It was in relationship. Um, it was rooted in the gospel. We've got same mission, different visions on exactly how we're going to do it. But, but it, it provided clarity of vision for both ministries. New leadership has risen up, and both ministries are blessed. I know weekend attendance is not, it, it's not the most important thing, but it, it is one thing that you can measure what's going on by. Before we launched, when everybody met at the beach on 3rd Street, a regular weekend, there'd be about 3, 000, about 2,000 people in attendance, about 2,000 people in attendance on a regular weekend. Um, now, two weekends ago, between the two churches, there were almost 5,500 people in attendance. OK? God is blessing this thing and that thing like crazy. And so listen, folks, please hear me. So when Pastor Jerry, whether he's standing on this stage or we show a video of him, then we will clap and we will cheer. You know why? Because he's my pastor. And if there's no Pastor Jerry Sweat, there is no Church of 1122. He gave me an opportunity to do things that nobody else ever gave me an opportunity to do. And we learn so much by what they did for us and in us and through us. And we have to continue because that is our heritage. It's a part of our DNA. So our church, the church of 1122, will forever be grateful, forever be grateful and thankful to Beach United Methodist Church and the leadership there, forever and ever, amen. And what does that mean for us? Well, God's been blessing us like crazy, and so what it means is we, and we learned this from Beach, we don't want to be the limiting factor on what God is doing. So on this Restore Project, I mentioned before, we've got about 150 families involved. I need that to go to about 1,000. We need 1,000 families involved. Why? Because we got to invest in what God is doing. Beach invested in 1122. When it, when every, nobody would look at that and be like, oh, that's a great plan. But they, and we invested in 1122 because we thought God was doing something special there. God is doing something special here, and we don't want to be the limiting factors. So, we need a thousand families, a thousand families. That's 25% of our attendance two weeks ago. A thousand families to take this card and pray like crazy, whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to commit, and that you commit. And uh, we need to raise $2.4 million by the end of this year. Another thing that we learned from, from Beach that we're going to implement is this. We're going to start a new service. On August the 4th, we will introduce the 522 service. That's a Sunday afternoon service. Five, look at you. You look nervous because you know what I'm going to ask you to do. <laughs> so at 522 on Sunday afternoons, beginning on August the 4th, we're, we're offering another service. Why? So that there are more options and opportunities for people to come to church. Like I said, we're running out of room in our kids' space. There are some Sundays where we barely have room in here. And so we're going to need hundreds of people from Sunday morning to begin to go to church on Sunday afternoon at 522 while we're rebuilding uh, the the back, the 25,000 square feet behind us. And so why would we start a new service? Are you kidding me? We were a new service. That is a part of our DNA. That's how this whole thing started. And it started with just a couple hundred people showing up to this crazy 1122 service. And now look what God has decided to do. So we're going to, we're going to start a brand new 522 service on August the 4th. The reason we're doing it at 522, families, we have you in mind. That's why. We have you in mind. We want to, to start it early enough in the day that you could bring your little guys, your children, and get them home for bath and night and all that kind of stuff. And so we'll have full new gen ministries ready for your kid, targeted for your, especially young families that want to bring their kids here. You know, you get up, you go to the beach on Sunday morning, then come back here and go to church in the evening, and then you make it home in time for bed and all that. A couple other things that we're going to do as God continues to bless us like crazy is this. And they're very much related. Really, it's kind of under the banner of raising up leaders and pastors around here. But in the next few years, we will be launching campuses, Church of 1122 campuses in and around the city of Jacksonville. And here's why. Because a bunch of you crazy people drive from a long, long way. I mean, there's some of you, there are are dozens and dozens of people that drive all the way from like Kingsland, Georgia, and all the way down like from Gainesville, Florida. We're trying to get as many people out of Gainesville as we can, okay? So we're trying to bring them (laughs) on up here closer to heaven, all right? But here's the thing: I know some of you crazy people will drive all that ways, but your friends not going to hop in the car and go an hour with you to church. So we're going to bring church your way, and we're going to we're going to have campuses in and around the city, um, so that so that you can even be a, a brighter light in your community and in bringing people to church. And then also we're gonna we're gonna plant gospel centered churches, and 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 what we're going to do, what that means is that we're going to raise up pastors from our church. And some of those pastors will be campus pastors for us at different locations around the city. And some of those pastors will will be lead pastors or senior pastors that we will train up and then launch as pastors of the very own church. Why? Why would we do that? Because that's what my pastor did for me. When When I was a youth pastor, I had no idea that I would be the lead pastor of this church. No idea, nor did I want to be. It was not even on my radar. But my pastor identified something in me, and God placed me under his spiritual leadership for 10 years. 10 years. Think about it. As rough and abrasive as I can be and placed me under the leadership of Pastor Jerry Sweat for a decade to prepare me to be the lead pastor of our church. So it's like we don't have a choice. That's what we are going to do. Some of you sitting in this room right now, you don't know this, but I know this because I'm the pastor. You are called to be a pastor that God has a calling on your life. And if right now you're going, uh-oh, then get you're done. And so we're going to raise you up, raise you up, train you in leadership and theology and and ministry philosophy. And some of you we're going to plan as campus pastors, and some of you we're going to launch as as pastors of your very own church. Why? Because that's exactly what Beach did for us. And so we do not want to be the limiting factor here. What it, It's so awesome. I know... It, You know, Father's Day, you remember when you were a kid and people would tell you, you look just like your dad. And you were like, don't you ever cuss me like that again. You know, I'm not, do not cut grass with my black socks up to here. That's crazy. And then you get a little older and you see yourself in the mirror and you're like, oh no, right? And you see it happening. And then when you get mature enough, you see some of your dad in you and you go, praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Well, guess what? We see some of our, we see some of our mother church in us. That we, there's so many things about Beach that we want to emulate. And we don't want to be the limiting factor. That's why we're on board with the Restore Project. We want to start new services because that's what they taught us to do. And we want to launch people out in campuses and churches. Why? Because that's how we got started. And so, on your notes, I I put it in your notes every week. And first time I'm going to talk about it. In your notes, under the final thought, there's a verse out of 1 Samuel. And I'm going to close with this. Um, it's 1 Samuel chapter 14. <clears throat> Let me give you a little bit of context. There's, there's this king named Saul. That's not New Testament Saul that became Paul. That's Old Testament Saul, and he was a good king. Then he got weird, and he got bad, okay? And he had a kid named Jonathan, and they were getting attacked by the Philistines. And the Philistines in the Old Testament, they're just always the bad guys, okay? And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, hey, I got an idea. Um, let's go attack the Philistines. There's about 600 Philistines in the army, and there's just a few Israelites and God's army here, and they're afraid, and they're scared, and it's in 1 Samuel uh, 14. So I just want to pick it up, that's kind of the context. So Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, that's the Philistines, there's about 600 of them. And then I love this line, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. But, But look at what it says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. And so the armor bearer, I'm sure, is like, so what's the plan? Here's the plan. Listen to his plan. He's like, all right, get the sword, get the shield. It's two of us versus 600, but I don't care. Come on. And, and here's our plan. We're going we're gonna to show ourselves to the Philistines. We're not going to sneak up on them and try to take them out one by one Rambo style. We're going to stand right in front of them, right, in the name of the Lord. And if they say, you wait right there and we're coming down to get you, then we're kind of screwed. But, but if they say, come up here to us, then we will know that God has given them over to our hands. And, here's the line, and perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. That sounds like a terrible plan, doesn't it? If you're the armor bearer, I'm going, hold on, what do you mean perhaps? Did you get a burning bush? Did you get a vision from an angel? I mean, do you have something? Because if a burning bush tells you or an angel comes in a vision and says, go get them for I am with you, then I'm with you, man. Let's do this because we got nothing to lose because God promised the victory and all we got to do is claim it, all right? No problem. But if you've got a perhaps, well, here's why I love that verse. Cause that's how we lead. That's how I lead. That's how I lead. When we started this service, did we think it would work? What do you mean work? I didn't know. Didn't know. But here's what I knew: perhaps the Lord would work on work on our behalf. And He did. And when we signed the lease on this place, and, and we decided 1750 chairs, did I know that we'd fill them up three times? mm But I thought perhaps, perhaps God might act on our behalf. And when we launched on opening day. We had no idea what would happen. Did we know to have a vision from God? Like you said, 1122 Walmart. No. All I knew was perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. So you know what we will continue to do? We will continue to do what we can do and count on God for the impossible. And so sure enough, they go up there and they show themselves to the Philistines. And the Philistine says, you come up here with us. And Jonathan looks over at his armor bearer and he's like, huh, I told you. And then boom, they'll go up there they slay them and so you know what we've experienced in this very room weekend after weekend after weekend all we do is what we can do all we can do is all i can do is stand up here on this stage and open up the text and just teach the bible and share the gospel the best i know how and guess what happens guess what happens perhaps Perhaps that guest you brought today, perhaps that friend that you're going to bring next week, perhaps your dad that, you, that doesn't want to do anything with church and not even sure he believes in God, and, and he knows that he doesn't need any of that stuff they're selling down at the old Walmart. and Perhaps he'll show up one day, and the Holy Spirit of God will do what only God can do. And perhaps God will work on our behalf, and he will reach into his heart and save that one that is far from him. We've only seen it done 570 times since we opened the doors on September 23rd. Amen. So we're going to learn. We're going to learn so many things from the church that planted us, and we're going to continue to never be the limiting factor in what God has in store. Why? Because perhaps God may continue to do what he's already been doing in this place. Would you please stand and pray with me? Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. God, I thank you so much for Beach 2 mc and for Pastor Jerry Sweat. God, I thank you. I thank you for his maturity. I thank you for his humility. I thank you for all of the things that he put on the line for the benefit of this church. Lord, I thank you that you, God, that you don't give us the whole plan in the beginning. God, I thank you that you didn't give me the whole plan in the beginning because I lacked the faith and the maturity to follow it through. But, Lord, I thank you that you give us turn-by-turn directions. And so, Lord, we thank you for sharpening a vision. Lord, we thank you for raising up more leaders. And, God, we thank you for your blessing. And it it is our prayer, God, that you would continue, perhaps you would continue, to do the miraculous things here even in this church. And we pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And hey listen, we respond every week. God initiates, we respond. We respond by coming to the altar. If you need to come to the altar and just lay some things at the foot of the cross, we want you to do that. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the gift boxes that are hidden around the edge of the building. Uh, we respond if you want to get involved in the Restore Project and you fill out that commitment card. We've got some buckets on the, sta- or on the steps right here. Or you could drop off your commitment cards in one of the giving boxes around the side. And we respond by unifying our voices together to sing to the God that loves us. So let us respond.